friends, welcome to episode 206 of Storyteller Conclave. This is a show all about helping you run the best tabletop role-playing game that you can, whether you're a new storyteller or dungeon master learning the craft, or an experienced storyteller looking to take your game to the next level. I'm Sarah. I'm Rob. How are you doing, Rob? You know, I'm doing okay now. It was a very long, very stressful last couple of days. I have not gotten very good sleep. The cats have been terrible to me. But, uh... I'm recovering. You know, I'm making it through. It's beautiful weather outside. We've got beautiful weather It is incredible. Here. It's 80-something here right now. <laughs> Good old Detroit, Michigan. Things yes. have finally come around to, uh, to that. We've got the windows open. Beautiful. Like, not a not a cloud in the sky. Sean and I got ice cream the other day. Yeah. I, ice cream I, places opened up. I so want to <clears> go get some ice cream right now. Uh, just like, or custard, honestly, I want custard, Mm -hmm. but, uh, we are, uh, and you're probably hearing a little in the background there. We are sitting here today, uh, kind of excited because we have a system spotlight, but not just a system spotlight. We have a system spotlight that literally kickstarted yesterday. Yep. And, uh, we have Pat Mooney on the line with us here to talk about this amazing Kickstarter, which I, last we checked, it was what, 16 K? That we're up to out of twenty five. Yeah, sixteen k of the twenty five uh, twenty five k goal. It just lo- just launched yesterday, so uh, things sound like they're going really great. Pat, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you. Yeah, it's my my pleasure to be here. Uh, I think the stars kind of aligned to uh, get us on at just the right time. So. It's perfect. So Pat is the lead designer at Flagbearer Games. Uh, they are the creator of this uh what i'm going to call a 5e overlay because we've been using that same uh term so it is a 5e compliant uh system uh edition that is set within the american revolutionary war uh so the the setting is one of history and of fact and yet still playable which is kind of exciting Oh, it's very playable, <laughs> extraordinarily playable, and we'll, we'll obviously we'll, we'll get into a deeper discussion of the uh, the, the mechanics and stuff of that. So, really, some brilliant work yeah. done with the five E framework. Here, I'm glad so. we kind of got a, a kind of a glimpse oh, of this thank before everything hit. You're welcome. You're well, we're gonna we're, we're hawking this up hard. It's worth it. Absolutely. <laughs> but uh, one of the things I think is funny, and I, I made this note, and I never brought it up when we had our pre discussion with you, Pat, was that you know tabletop games came from like tabletop war miniatures mm-hmm. being played and we're coming full circle <laughs> like we're back there <laughs> you know we're you know whether it's it's a revolutionary war didn't 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 we do this before like are we, are we, yep. were we 30 years out and coming right way, back around <laughs> way back to chain mail what was it 1973 yeah, i want to say exactly. was where this whole the whole shebang got yeah. yeah. Start. So so we're we're right back where we started. We're we're you know, I I, I don't I, I'm excited and yet I'm kinda scared that we're back there. Can you imagine <laughs> y- younger players like going like, Okay, we're gonna play Nations and Cannons tonight. Like yeah. I need to go raid my grandfather's pewter figurines for some miniatures. First off, don't do that because they're right. probably leaded <laughs> and you're unless they're painted, you're gonna have problems. They're also probably priceless, so yeah. yeah that's true, <laughs> that's true. That is very true. So yeah, we're very excited. We I, I want to get this out front because I, I really want you to be able to talk about this opening. So tell us a little bit about Flagbearer Games and this educational mission that you're on with this, where it sits. It is a game, and yet it's an educational mission. So it's a, yeah, yeah, I think that's that's a great place to start, right? So you know, we at Flagbearer Games are going to tell stories that are lifted directly from history, uh, and so the. Um, the work that we're doing right now with the Revolutionary War is, is really it's only one part of, of a larger initiative that really want to do to uh, create mechanics and scenarios and, you know, all types of different gameplay, um, you know, material to play games set during 
the age of revolutions. Um, and, you know, the uh, American revolution is, is the one that we're kind of putting to the fore right now. It's the iconic one. It's the one that, you know, that we're all very well familiar with, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, but it really, it was the start of a chain, you know, uh, you think about the term domino effects, right? Mm -hmm. The American revolution started what was called the Atlantic revolutions, um, mm -hmm. which then reverberated throughout Europe and Latin America, um, most notably, of course, in the bloody, bloody chaos that was the French Revolution. But you had, you know, scores of other attempted revolutions, some of them failing, some of them succeeding. Mm -hmm. um, but all of them, you know, having these, these very powerful, poignant moments of resistance to, um, you know, evil empires and colonial rule and, and, you know, people rising up to fight for their freedom and fight for self-determination in ways that had not been thought possible before. And that's something that we think is really cool, both, you know, uh, from a historical perspective, but also it, it leads to really interesting uh, gameplay, great role play moments mm -hmm. um, and moments where we can dig into, you know, iconic well understood periods like the Revolutionary War, but also lesser known moments um, that happen all over the globe um, to, in in support of these types of uh, heroic resistances. Oh, sure, absolutely. In, in, I mean, even within even within just the scope of the Revolutionary War, uh, you were telling us a little bit before the show that uh, there are all sorts of little um, vignettes in history of of uh, smaller. Uh, you know, political changes, um, things that happened between various Native American tribes and such like that, uh, alliances between nations and whatnot that, you know, we all hear, we all know the story of, you know, the Redcoats are coming, the Redcoats are coming and stuff like that. But it, it so much more happened during the Revolutionary War. And uh, there's a lot of those stories end up in your book here. But, you know, a lot of them you just did, you didn't have the, the, the room for. That's why we made another book. Yeah, <laughs> and and that's that's the thing that I was that I, I wanted to say with this is that it it feels like this is just like it's not even the foot in the door. You're kind of kicking the door open, mm -hmm. and hopefully, and I hope this that you get other educators not just from America here, but from around the globe to be able to step in and help with flag bearers mission because I would love to see other revolutions done the same way as this. Because for me, this is exciting. This mm -hmm. is how I would want to learn a little bit more about history. And just from both Sarah and I's history of playing games, there's an inherent difference in the way you learn and the way you're remembering. Because role-playing is an experience that forces you to imagine. It forces 100%. you to imprint those things in your mind. And so now... As you're playing, you are in that time period in your own head, and that is imprinting it in a different way. So what, what we've done here, right, we've created um, a setting and scenarios that put you, you know, sort of through the eyes of a continental army soldier envisioning that world and so you know yeah we can give you a give you a musket and let you blow some red coats away whenever i play with kids you know of course they're always they're they're bloody little monsters right they love um to just rain down hellfire uh on on those poor brits but you know the thing that's more important um is is what i call like embedded civics right mm -hmm. okay so you know you've got your your marching orders and you know you've got this uh enemy force and you know we're like rah rah go patriotism right but at the same time well you're at valley forge and um nobody has any boots 
the whole camp is starving and smallpox is, you know, epidemic, right? Mm -hmm. What do you do? How do you feel in that scenario? How does your character deal with these hardships, with these, you know, hardships that are kind of intangible if you read a history book? Because Mm -hmm. you are thinking of things from a top-down 250 year in the past, you know, we know this, the end to the story. We know how this, this, you know, all works out. And at that time, um, the, the biggest myth about the American revolution was that George Washington rode across the Delaware, you know, uh, and then kicked the British out of Yorktown and boom, you know, wham, bam, uh, it's, it's done. And we got a country out of it. And it was an incredibly dire, uh, high stakes situation where you had all sorts of different groups, you know, the the army, the Continental Congress, the constituent states feuding with each other uh, for resources, you know, doing their best to scrounge things up, um, making uh, alliances and deals with France and Spain to smuggle gunpowder in just mm-hmm. so they could be able to field an army, yep. uh, extending benefits and making promises that, quite frankly, they couldn't. Uh, cash, you know, with uh, soldiers pay to to get people to sign up because, you know, the real uh, during the most desperate moments of the war, there was a chance that the Continental Army would itself entirely collapse and there would be no one left to fight if they didn't have any big victories. Um, And so that's really, you know, the, the, when we talk about our educational mission, what we want is, is to create a role playing environment that supports that, that teaches you, from an, uh, a boots-on-the-ground perspective. Um, but we especially want to do that uh, with schools and you know libraries and, and historic organizations. Um, so we have a program that we started at the beginning of this year where uh, any educator can um, go on our website, nasonsandcannons.com, uh, and request a copy of our core rules, and we will send it out to you free of charge, right? Um, all the material That's that awesome. you need to play the game, we pre-generated characters, um, you know, quick play guides and stuff like that. It's all there on our website. Um, and we really want this to be something that you can use, you know, for your D&D club. If you're a teacher, if you know a teacher <laughs> listening to this, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, anybody who might be, be up the alley, if you think it's, it's a, a great way to get kids, you know, um, just to peek through the crack of history, right? Mm-hmm. And once you get somebody who has just thought about, oh, well, why is it that the Continental Army was arranged this way and had all these people in different places and and uh, ooh, they were really struggling to field that many troops? And the moment that you get uh, a student to ask a single question and, you know, go online and type something into the search bar, right, then you've got them. Then you've got a history uh, major in, in the making. And that is my mission. That is what I really want to do is to get as much of that uh, as much curiosity uh, and and to nourish that as much as I can through this game. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, har- harnessing the power of not only their imagination but their curiosity, and and you know, a role playing situation kind of puts you in the middle of all of this. Uh, it's it's one thing when it's you know a stuffy uh, history book that you just read about mm-hmm. you know a bunch of dead people, but it's another thing when it's the lore of your campaign. And that's that's one of the <laughs> points know? that I was just thinking is like as a storyteller, like even as a youth storyteller, like one of my things that I would do is be looking for maps, I'd be looking for history, I'd be look, trying to pull up lore of the thing. Right. So I would do a ton of research, and this is historical research. Like this this could create a book report at the same time. You yeah, know? exactly. But but you're interested. You want to be in 
involved with those things and be able to make it as real as possible. Mm-hmm. And and in verisimilitude is something that we love <laughs> yep. to bring around, and that you can't get closer than this because you have the information right there. Yeah, absolutely. Which, and, and if I can, if I can soapbox on that for one second, go right? For it. Um, I mean, it's, it's it's embedded. It's it's in our our DNA. It's like you know uh, what we are passionate about. Like I'm just a a big old history nerd, right? And so I love to make this stuff. Um, we we did a print run of uh, a bunch of cloth maps. Um, uh, these maps are uh, all, you know, pr- scanned uh, from primary source documents that are 250 years old, upsampled, sort of painstakingly restored, printed out mm-hmm. on cloth um, that we, you know, we thought, well, maybe these will sell. I mean, <laughs> honestly, I just kind of wanted to make them so I could have some for myself, right? They're really cool if you're um, you're running a campaign and you want to be able to put, like, the city of New York in front of you and you let your players run run wild. Oh, yeah. Um, or to, to track your progress sort of up and down the eastern seaboard. So we, we you know, first source these documents to, to create, like, an atlas uh, and to, to build, like, a couple of chapters what were called gazettes, you know, mm-hmm. talking about different interesting places in, in uh, the world, in, in the, you know, um, North America at the time. And, um, you know, it's translated to now that the Kickstarter is up, right? It's some of our biggest sellers are people just that just really like those maps and think they're really cool. Um, so, hey, you know, if, uh, if you're looking for... Um, uh, a, a gift for your uncle who's uh, really interested in, in, in this subject matter, or um, you know, I, I will I will drop the uh, link that we're using uh, that we were very lucky to pick up. <laughs> that um, is, is, it is amazing. <clears throat> drum roll, please. Your dad will love this. dot com. I love that. <laughs> I absolutely love that link. Oh my gosh! So I, I'm going to shift this ahead just a little bit because I have to get this question in. Uh-huh. Why D and D? Was it yeah, especially with the question. OGL stuff going on? Like, yeah. was it like obviously your development stepped well before the OGL? You, this has been going on for years. How how long is this development going on, and why D and D? So it, it's been ongoing for quite a while, right? This is um, we've been working on this project for over four years, and on this book, the the American Crisis, the source book on the American Revolution in particular, for for um, about three years now. Um, you know, the secret sauce at the heart of this project, um, you know, was realizing, number one, okay, Alexander Hamilton definitely knew the cantrip of vicious mockery. Yep, <laughs> definitely. Uh, and number two, that uh, flintlock firearms kind of slot into the action economy of uh, D&D combat in a really interesting way, okay. right? Um, and once I kind of had that eureka moment, I was like, oh, kind of off to the races. Um the the most important reason is is again it goes back to our educational mission of we want this in schools um, and it's difficult uh, under the best of times um, to get facilitators to run D and D clubs um, you know even if you are the most game curious teacher out there who uh, you know loves to crack open story games and and run, um, you know pours through all these different uh, products the Major, you know, the 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 big kid on the block is D and D. It's always going to be D and D, and so the one that we have the largest chance of actually getting in front of people and being used in you know those types of educational environments was D and D. Now that doesn't mean that we um, have a kind of a, a half baked product on our hands here, right? Like uh, this is also coming from me as a game designer and as a as a D and D player, um, having thought about this 
quite a bit and and figured, okay, so if this is the framework that I'm I want to use, right? How can I take some of the familiar tropes in D and D and twist them, right? Mm-hmm. How can I have that heroic fantasy um, with a power level that increases over time, right? Mm-hmm. And still have it make sense in in a historical environment. And and kind of the realization there was. You know, like in any game in D&D, you're not commoners. You're not your average Joes, right? You are uh, a lar- bit larger than life figures, right? You're, you're sort of equivalent by the time you've, you've been going for a while uh, uh, to folk heroes mm-hmm. like uh, Daniel Boone or uh, Molly Pitcher. Um, and uh, the idea being really to focus on, you know, the types of uh, high-stakes drama um, – and moments in history that could have tipped the scales, right? Like things like espionage um, or guerrilla actions operating behind enemy lines to secure a certain objective or to gather, you know, uh, a, a report on, you know, the disposition of enemy forces, like all the type of stuff where players as a group of partisans and, you know, sort of special uh, light infantry soldiers and, and rangers, both of the class and otherwise, um, could have a really large impact without the game getting bogged down in giant, giant battles, which D&D is not good at, right? So we're talking right. the the skirmish level is uh, really where the thinking is, really where Renaissance and Cannons shines. Now, I... Uh... We said you know this has been in development for a long time here, um, but uh, you know obviously recently we had the the sort of OGL 2.0 shakeup yeah. with things. I'm sure that uh, uh, I'm sure that caused a, quite a quite a stir with uh, with you guys over there at Flagbear. How did you uh, how did you deal with the um, the OGL scandal and uh, in you know in the deepest darkest times of there where it looked like D and D might be you know having a very rough time there. Did you consider other game systems for it? And uh, if so, what what were they? There were a lot of sleepless nights, right? <laughs> um, just because this project had been in development for three plus years, we'd put a lot of you know blood, sweat, and tears into it by that point. Um, uh, and we were, you know, we just launched a Kickstarter yesterday. That's like T minus four months, you know, relative right. to three yeah. years worth of work. You know, right, we were pretty right. deeply invested in what we'd we'd already put together at that point in time. Um, I was on the front lines of that fight. Um, uh, I did my best, you know, as soon as that news was announced to really try to spread awareness, um, to help people understand, you know, the sort of alphabet soup of acronyms that were floating around, like why this is important and Mm -hmm. meaningful, Mm -hmm. um, and to, uh, to get folks to voice their displeasure. Um, And, you know, ultimately... I I think the issue, it's simmering down. Um, I can't say definitively, you know, in what way it ultimately is going to settle because the one outstanding question in the long term is going to be what the OGL is going to look like when um, the Mm 1D&D, you know, the new version, 5.5, whatever it is you want to call it, like, you know, uh, will that be egregious again? that's that's an unsolved question that I don't have the answer to right now. Mm-hmm. But for the moment, it looks like that um, backlash was incredibly important in getting a culture shift. Um, and and you know, I'll I'll take that one step further, right? Because you know, and this kind of goes along with our our message and like what Nations and Cannons is as a hybrid project, right? 
one of the things that I was really trying to raise awareness of, um, and I was actually interviewed in an article by IGN, like, you know, just a couple of days after uh, the, the news broke, uh, among several others. I don't want to take all the credit here, but right. um, uh, I talked at length about what what I thought was the importance of open standards. Mm-hmm. Um, Sedations of Canons is a 5e you know, overlay, I think, is a really elegant word. I've been using the term hack. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, it's it's an adaptation of an existing rule set um, because it's a hybrid. It's trying to do something um, in, you know, a, a, a gameplay space where um, building a game, a dedicated game, you know, an, an indie story RPG, whatever it is, um, about the American Revolution is a huge risk. Like if if that was the value proposition just of, uh, in and of itself, right? Um, I don't know if it would get enough eyes on it. Mm-hmm. Just speaking frankly and honestly, right? That it would be able to succeed. Sure, sure. Um, in, in addition to all the you know wanting to be compatible with like as many schools and, and teachers that are going to be able to run the game. Um, Nations of Canons is not the first game to have done this, right? If you look back at the you know twenty three year history of the OGL, you had things like um, D twenty Modern, mm-hmm. like um, the original Savage Worlds, yep. like um, you know the the Star Wars uh, D twenty systems, mm-hmm. um, which uh, were all effectively running on the D twenty engine. Mm-hmm. Um, just recently, you know, uh, our friends over at Evil Genius Games. Uh, rebooted D20 Modern in Everyday Heroes. Um, and they had a, a pretty successful showing on yeah. Kickstarter, right? Mm-hmm. Which shows mm-hmm. that there is uh, a stomach for people um, using the D20 system, um, which is not just 5e. It's just those rules um, to simulate other types of gameplay. And, you know, not every game is going to be a good fit. Not every setting is going to be a good fit for a D20 system. Um, but Having an open standard is incredibly important, not just for us, for our bottom line, but as a design practice, as a resource that's available for indie devs out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tell this to my students, you know, because I also uh, teach game design at the university level, right? Um, a, a lot of game designers get, you know, kind of cut their teeth um in the digital world in the modding scene, right. In right, taking right, yep. existing games and, and, and modifying them and, and uh, finding cool ways to insert like new logic, you know, give a, a, a new coat of paint or teach an old dog, new tricks. Right. Um, because it's so much easier than building something for yourself. Right. And so there is a level of risk that you can take with a weird off the wall hybrid project. Like, you know, the Revolutionary War in D&D um, that you might not otherwise be able to do uh, if you did it as a, a standalone project all on its own. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And- uh, now, the, the setting here, um, we, you know, uh, we, we, we mentioned earlier that uh, there's a lot of, like, little bits of rich history like you said it wasn't just you know george washington kicked them out and then we had a nation you know yeah, it's, it's not like the coastline was only like 200 <laughs> miles long either you know we're, we're dealing with the entire eastern seaboard plus 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 yeah exactly um so uh, there's there's so many little bits of story in here so many uh great little actual historical characters that you have highlighted in sidebars or used it as examples of archetypes mm-hmm. of characters um 
or even you know laced into the uh the the adventures that are in the back mm-hmm. of the book um can you can you talk a little bit about um not only you know kind of how you came by all this vast history to put in there but also um what sort of you know process went into making sure that this was a very multicultural uh, story that we were telling. Um, you've got great stories in there about various uh, Native American tribes uh, and such like that. Um, uh, can you can you talk to us a little bit about uh, about that? Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, and you know, there is kind of this conception of the American Revolution as uh, a stuffy old white man's war, right? Right. right. Um, and while you know, to a certain extent, the landed wealthy class of white elites was the one real beneficiary of the war mm-hmm. at the end. Like, you know, when uh, that power structure kind of ossified into, you know, the entity that became the United States today, um, at the time, there there really was, as, as there always is in moments of revolution, right, um, people who believed in the words, all men are created equal, who believed in a fight for equality. Um, that's what makes these moments uh, so interesting is because when uh you've got a a rebellion um and when all bets are off um then you kind of don't know what kind of society is going to come out with um and so you know one of our 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 really major goals with this project is to shine a spotlight on um underprivileged voices right on on uh people who might who are in the historical record, um, but aren't given a lot of, uh, of of weight or resonance in the history books today. We have a number of um, uh, iconic characters that mm-hmm. we've created, and mm-hmm. these are available in our, our uh, adventure campaign as free-generated characters. You can go on our website and download the character sheets. Um, and those characters are, you know, there there are certainly some white guys, right? But uh, we're very proud of the fact that um, – you know, over half of them um, are, you know, are, are women, um, are, are uh, Black Americans, are in, Indigenous, you know, people. Uh, and they, um, each one of them is someone who fought for the, the Patriot cause mm-hmm. and, you know, is is a real documented person in history books. You can, you can go uh, online and, you know, next to the character sheet on our website where you can download them is a link to the Wikipedia page. Um, they're, they're people that were there. They had agency in the past and, you know, they, they fought for what they believed in. Yeah, and, absolutely. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say too, uh, the, you know, you'd also mentioned too that, uh, you know, part of your, uh, uh, part of the mission kind of a flag bearer games was to um, also make sure that the people behind the scenes um, you know, had a multicultural, uh, uh, very diverse set of voices, so that it wasn't just, you know, a bunch of a bunch of old white history nerds. You know, uh, <laughs> uh, so- I, I don't know if I'd call myself old. You know, like approaching middle age, I suppose. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm 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 outside of the twenty to thirty five bracket now. So that's a that that hits that sings a little bit. But fair enough. Fair uh, enough. No, no. Um, we uh, we we absolutely you know. Um, to a certain extent, like as as a, a white dude, right? Um, there are some stories that I just can't tell, mm-hmm. and that's that's not me, you know, like muzzling myself from an editorial perspective. That's just I would not feel comfortable, um, say telling someone else's history. Um, that there are there are moments in time that um are incredibly important um out in the frontier, 
in in places like uh, the Caribbean and the history of the Caribbean and, and its links to uh, the chattel slavery system, you know, is integral to any understanding of, um, you know, the American Revolution and and that time period that that followed. Um, and there there are all sorts of these moments um, that, you know, it's we want to be able to tell those stories. But I want to partner with people um, who feel comfortable representing their own peoples, representing their own cultures, bringing that stuff to the table so that they can tell their stories. I'm not the one who is, you know, um, guiding the process, who is who's, uh, orienting anything behind the scenes. I can come up with mechanics. I can come up with, you know, scenarios, right? But ultimately, sure, sure. Um, you know, we want to give uh, folks the opportunity to crack open, you know, those corners of history and really shine a spotlight on moments of heroic resistance, specifically heroic resistance to colonialism. Um, that That is really embedded at the heart of Nagans and Gannons. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, do you want to dig into the mechanics a little bit? Because uh, you, you've done a lot of really unique things to kind of, like you said, hack this to... Uh, uh, to 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 use D and D's uh, framework, uh, fifth edition's framework. I mean, for to do for some a very interesting tactical things. game, it feels like you really like you were saying with firearms and and some of the pieces, it fit very good with the timing. But one of the things that hit my mind, and I, I know Sarah was, we were both talking about this, is uh, like right in the beginning, it talks. You, you describe what levels this is good for, and you set this kind of bar <clears throat> of, of retirement early this protege system um wh- where did that come into your mind frame as you were as you were developing this yeah it's a, it's a really good point um the you know our, our our firearm rules effectively the way that 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 firearms are balanced is that a single shot flintlock musket deals about twice as much damage um as other ranged options but it has to be reloaded after you fire it as uh, an action. Um, and actually you can reload it as an, an action or as an attack. That logic was kind of originally um, you know, meant to be compatible with the gunslinger um, from a critical role, uh, which is kind of like one of the most um, popular and, and well understood um, iterations of black powder mechanics mm-hmm. in 5e D&D. Mm-hmm. Um, now that, that mechanic, that that class has a bunch of mechanical uh, issues and concerns that that, that I think are, are pretty well noted, mm-hmm. and and we took that as a starting point. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, the idea being, you know, how many attacks around can you make? How 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 much can you jam a, a, a bullet, a musket ball uh, down a musket, fire, and do it again um, in six seconds in a way that makes any type of consistent sense? Right, and, right. You know, the, the realization we came with was that after 10th level the game starts to fall away right Mm -hmm. um you get to the point where enemies really become bullet sponges um well beyond um any reasonable you know human being would be able to absorb um and still kind of like keep it to that level of verisimilitude um a lot of class features start to become you know super heroic even for martial classes at that point in time Mm -hmm. um and spell effects you know um kind of get off the rails and we'll talk about gambits and how we handle that stuff later on. Um, but you know, that, uh, decision was made to have, you know, games, historical games play with nations of cannons to occur in the bracket from level one to level 10. Um, mm-hmm. and then after you reach level 10, you know, when you get to the point where your character would kind of become superhuman, you retire that character, 
Um, and then uh, they become the protege, or sorry, they, they become um, you know effectively promoted to high command in, in some respects. You create a new character as their protege, who can kind of you know inherit some of their goodies and and you know get has a leg up um, on the system, um, which allows you to then uh, still have an impact on the story and role play moments, both at the high levels of. Um, of, of power, you know, from your, your retired character who is now acting as a commander um, and your new character who is uh, the replacement, you know, boots on the ground, actually going out and going on these missions and special operations. It's a system that we want to expand on in the future. Uh, we, we have a kind of a baseline rule in there right now, um, but uh, I, I think it's it's a good one. It's It allows players not to feel like they have to, you know, like throw away their character when they hit max level um, and then not be able to continue to explore and experience the world. It's, it, it's a way to have your cake and eat it too in some respects. Oh, sure, sure, absolutely. And I think like uh, Dungeon World um, also had uh, uh, a very similar mechanic mm-hmm. there. I think it was... That's where fact, we think, borrowed it from. Uh, oh, yep, okay. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I, I think it was actually 10th level in uh, in, in uh, Dungeon World as well. So yeah, uh, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, good, good borrowing, good borrowing. Uh, now you you mentioned uh, gambits a little bit earlier. Uh, I I would really love for you to elaborate a little bit on gambits um, and how you kind of adapted the the, the, the magic system um, over. But uh, what I what I also really kind of want you to, to dovetail into here is that you've introduced a new class mm-hmm. into the game called the Firebrand, um, which is kind of uh, is, as I understand it, a bit of a mix of bard and cleric um, that covers these great orators. Um, and you know, the, 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 people who would write these missives and newsletters and whatnot to get these words out, you know, where we're talking, you know, very, very, very pre-internet days here. So, <laughs> uh, you know, um, they did have the power of the press. The, yeah, but you did have the power of the, the old press. school pin- printing press. Exactly. Uh, and so you've, you've kind of crafted this, this firebrand class around that as a, uh, as as a social influencer uh, of a mover and shaker, either a man of faith or a uh, like I said, a great orator um, who can shift the tides of crowds either for weal or for woe and whatnot. Um, and they primarily uh, make use of the gambit system, which is kind of your replacement for magic. So, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. Uh, so the classes that we support in a historical nations and canons game are a fighter, ranger. Rogue, Barbarian, and then, of course, the Firebrand. Um, and uh, we, we have a, a number of new subclasses and, and you know, uh, weapon systems that we really want you to, um, to within that somewhat limited pool of available classes, still have some player expression. Mm-hmm. Um, right, so we really right. want you to be able to spec into different builds of, you know, if this one character is a, a sharpshooting rifleman uh, and another character, you know, the, prefers to do a bayonet charge, right? Well, you've kind of feats and other things that they can do to facilitate that. Um, so that there is still kind of a, a good mix and, and um, uh, diversity within the play group. Um, but, you know, if, if you notice that that group of classes, um, the ranger gets uh, some casting, which, you know, I'll talk about in just a second, but they're, you know, there's no bard, there's no face, right? right um, yeah. All the charisma classes are completely shot. And so we decided to create another, uh, what's traditionally called a half caster, right? Um, mm-hmm. Called the firebrand, which is, you know, like you said, your rabble rouser type. Um, 
and um, to give them lots of abilities to uh, influence the world around them, to charm enemies, to give inspirational speeches and, and rally their allies. Uh, and that's through a system called Gambits. Um, and Gambits, this is, um, you know, uh, it's similar to how the Artificer class in 5e is kind of encouraged to uh, to flavor their spells in a different way. Like you're a craftsman. You're, how do you achieve that effect? Come up with a cool way to, to describe that. Um, and, right. It's not, you know, a, it's not are, a scorching ray. Are, it's, a, it's a laser cannon, you know? <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah, exactly, right? Right. Gambits are, are things like um, they function mechanically identically to spells, but um, we – you know, encourage you to flavor them as like uh, feats of gumption or daring do tricks or, um, you know, uh, actions of espionage, um, humoral medicine, right? And some of the weird like bloodletting and, and uh, surgical techniques of the time, right? There's lots of ways that we've found ways to incorporate elements of the colonial world mm-hmm. and that point in time specifically into these extraordinary abilities, which are then, you know, using uh slots to cast just as any other caster might um and so my favorite you know um firebrands have uh a, a number of different uh subclasses that they can choose um the firebrand was an attempt to kind of bring a caster class back into a world with entirely half casters because they have a resource called um uh I'll actually blank on the name of the resource right now. They have a resource <laughs> um, that that they can expend um, to in a limited way to upcast spells uh, or gambits even beyond what they normally would be able to. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can you can do that. You can kind of have access to ex- uh, abilities uh, that a wizard or a bard of an equivalent level might. But we've curated those so they all make sense in a mundane world. Right. The big problem with wizards in the 18th century is they can snap their fingers and then point at something, you know, uh, 150 feet away and it explodes in a fireball. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, you can do that in nations and cannons, but it involves, you know, creating a fugas, which is a pit in the ground that you dig over the course of an hour, you fill with gunpowder and a bunch of debris. And then, you know, when the time comes, you light it. And it explodes and it it rains down hellfire on the specific point that it's targeted at. But in order to do that, you have to have the time to to create it in the first place. It has a very fixed location that it's targeted at. So you have to kind of lure your opponents into that, you know, uh, dead zone. Mm -hmm. Um, it, It really encourages you to think a bit more tactically um, about how to use these powerful abilities um, to, and to kind of use the the terrain and the environment of the campaign world to your advantage. Um, there's another one that I'll get into. <laughs> uh, this is my personal favorite. Um, the Firebrand gets an ability, uh, I think it's sixth level, called Pamphleteer. And that ability yes. allows them to weaponize the Postal Service yes. by... Uh, writing a sternly worded letter and inscribing one of their gambits into it, you know, so charm person or, um, or suggestion, I think is a better example mm-hmm. than charm person, uh, or, you know, um, something, you know, we have a new ability called code Dwello, which is, I challenge you to a courtly duel, sir. Right. Yeah. Um, or, you know, other similar effects that you put in the mail and that take effect when the target 
receives your letter and opens it. Mm-hmm. I, I can't tell throw. you how much I love that ability when I read it. <laughs> like, I feel like that needs to be in D&D. Like, you just send a letter to somebody, they open it, and the magical glyph stares at them, and they just go, oh, crap. He said the telegram, <laughs> screw you, strong letter to follow. <laughs> But it, but it's so it's so brilliantly accurate. There were yeah. so many times in history where strongly worded letters literally were presented to people, and it changed what they were going to do next. Well, sure, absolutely, absolutely. You know what? And it, and it wasn't even so much that like it was just that that brief moment of of gentlemanliness breaks away, and they're just like we're marching on this city. But but sir, there's there's no one there. There is someone there that we're going to take care of. And it's it's a trap. It clearly is. But it was enough to break that person's mind away from how they should be doing things. Mm-hmm. And that right yeah. there is command. That's you're you're literally taunting. And that's that's beauty in in combining that. And that's wonderful. It's it, it's oh. easy to imagine. I'll take that one step further and talk about the ranger gambits a little bit, right? Um, so we've got you know things like uh, a lower level gambit called fog of war, which is that you you it's almost like a swift invisibility type. You fade into the backdrop as long as you're concealed um, into the environment around you uh, to be able to you know get a moment of relief or, or instantly um, you know hide yourself even if you're not a rogue. Um, We've got, you know, other ones, uh, one uh, called Order Volley, which is, you know, you train, a, you, you recruit a bunch of mil- um, uh, Minutemen yeah. or militia folks. Uh, you get them all ready, and then at the time of your choosing, you order them, and then kind of like from the shadows, they all shoot a volley at your enemies and then disappear. Um, and my favorite, um, which is, it's similar to, you know, your sterling worded letter changing the kind of hit tide of history but it's in a very different way it's a high level um gambit called uh ruse de guerre uh, and some of our, our gambits are taken from kind of like french mm-hmm. or uh latin phrases that i think give it kind of like a more of a mystical feel you know like the, the equivalent to your um bigsby's grasping hand mm-hmm. is, is 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 actually uh you know just a frenchman mm-hmm. um but <laughs> ruse de guerre is um it's uh you get a bunch of your your buddies together and you you know, do things like it's nighttime and you light a bunch of campfires and you do that, you know, in a kind of a large perimeter uh, and you run around, you know, kind of like making noise and things like that. So as to seem as a much larger force than you actually are, you create a, a shadow army. Soon as um, you are strong, appear weak. If you are many, appear few. <laughs> yep. Yep. All warfare is yep. based upon deception. Yep. And and by doing that, you know, that's a narrative moment right there. Like, yeah. that's, that's not a combat uh, uh, gambit, but, like, what it does, it allows you to kind of project force and trick, you know, whoever the opponent, opposing commander is. Um, and um, this this is something that happened, right? Yeah. Historically, there were moments um, Washington, you know, um, wasn't actually a very good battlefield commander. I mean, he wasn't terrible, right? But his real strength was in logistics and actually knowing when to fight and when to to turn tail. Washington was brilliant at retreating and at holding his army together at all costs when otherwise, you know, the odds were stacked against him. Um, you can see this, uh, you know, in a couple places, most in, in Importantly, in uh, his retreat from um, New York, you know, when the yeah. British land the 32,000 troops in New York Harbor, right? Um, Washington is completely uh, outmanned, outgunned, mm-hmm. caught off guard, stuck, you know, in um, in Brooklyn, and he needs to get his guys out of there. And he's just happens to be lucky enough that it's on a 
uh, a moonless night um, mm-hmm. with uh, with some heavy, you know, uh, uh, um, fog. weather, you know, yep. fog and clouds. Yep. Um, and so he's able he does not lose a single man in this operation. The British are completely caught off guard. He has a bunch of his guys go do this, go create these fake campfires mm-hmm. and pretend like everything's hunky dory. The British wake up the following morning and find that he has vanished into the wind. Mm-hmm. Um Leaving, leaving nothing, and that is how you know the the Continental Army lives to fight another day is by using ruse de guerre. So George Washington is a high level firebrand. Well, it's better than the alternative. You're stuck in Brooklyn. You see thirty two thousand redcoats rolling up on you. You just don't stand there and go, "Hey, I'm marching here." <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, what that reminded me of was uh, another ruse de guerre that, uh, and I can't remember the battle it's from, but. Uh, the 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 sea sh- the ships were too far at sea they couldn't actually bombard mm-hmm. and so he ordered uh the the general head who was on land had ordered two of his men to row, row out and tell them to not load cannon balls but to fire them and he planted charges around the field so and <laughs> had people light them oh. so it would seem like they could and it turned the battle because the the other guy wasn't going to charge into cannons. They were they were just hearing cannon fire, seeing and then, explosions. Yep. Put the two put the two together in their own minds and went. They've got artillery. We can't be here. We can't run the beach. I, yeah. I, I gotta look that one up. This one's yeah. news to me. That's fantastic. I don't this remember if it was thing that uh, we love. if it was uh, if it was revolutionary or civil war, but I remember this story and I was just like, it, it was a brilliant tactic because they couldn't get the ships too close to shore and they would never been able to to yeah. target that. And yep. it was just a simple ruse and it was a, a quick swift change yeah it's beautiful but and, and so a lot of our gambits are, are things like that where you know okay well if you're playing a historical nations and cannons game you don't have spells you don't have anything supernatural right, right. you're in history but we use things like black powder you know mm-hmm. and the, the kind of force multiplier that are large explosions to allow you to achieve with preparation and planning you know those type of effects which are analogous to casting spells in your typical D&D Well, game. one of your, one of your, your barbarian subclass that you've included in here is the Grenadier. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and actually gets a few gambits of his own, you know, a, a quote-unquote spell-casting barbarian. You've got uh, uh, making IEDs and such like that and being yeah. able to lob them into battle uh, is, is pretty scary. Uh, but it was really great to see uh, a cool barbarian subclass like that using all that I, black powder tag. That, that one I like quite a bit. Um, this this one, it, it's deceptively simple but it's got a lot of thought that went into it yeah yeah the way that grenades work in this time period they're very unpredictable Uh, a grenade is really if you think of like a pirate cartoon right it's Mm -hmm. it's a big hunk of iron filled with gunpowder with a fuse on it right it is a crude weapon um and so they were often mostly used in like you know naval ship-to-ship combat uh but if you were holding one of those things and you cut the fuse too short it would go off in your hands um, add to disastrous consequences. Uh, and so, you know, um, we have a mechanic where if you roll a misfire, um, and misfire is a mechanic that uh, you can misfire a gun and the gun jams. Um, it's a way of, that we, we balance firearms. If you roll a misfire on a grenade, uh, it blows up in your hand and it hurts not only you, but the people standing around you. Mm-hmm. But barbarians, uh, grenadiers specifically, gain the ability to use reckless attack with uh, you know, when throwing a grenade. So they, you know, they, they ex- get out there, they expose themselves to battle. They, they're, they're so angry and so reckless that they're actually doing the thing that's going to keep the party more alive. Cause they've, you know, if they've got advantage on that attack, they have a much lower chance of actually rolling a misfire. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
So it, it's it's one of those cool places where we, you know, even even a class like uh, Barbarian, which is generally speaking like such a melee oriented class, we've found cool ways to inject uh, some of some of those black powder systems into them and make it feel fresh and unique. Now, speaking of, speaking of black powder, did you want to elaborate a little bit on the firearms rules? Uh, I know you, you mentioned kind of about the action economy <laughs> earlier, but I know there's a lot of different types of black powder weapons you've included. Yes, yes. All right. Let's get into it. This is my favorite part, right? Uh, so, um, okay. The number one criticism of uh, most black powder systems um, is that, uh, well, if guns have a misfire chance, um, it unduly penalizes characters with extra attack. Sure. Um, sure. Like mm-hmm. your fighters and, and barbarians and whatnot. Because the more attacks you make, the greater chance that the thing, you know, ceases functioning and then it, it kind of sucks. Right. Um, so what we have done is we've created a system uh, called War Gear. Um, and war gear are uh, it allows you to customize your character's loadout. So you can go into battle um, with a brace of pistols strapped across your chest, like Blackbeard, mm-hmm. um, and just dual wield with as many pistols on your person as you could possibly cram in there. You could be, you know, uh, a sharpshooter who um, carries a musket or a carbine for short-range engagements and a, a long rifle um, for long ones and maybe a, you know, a knife stuck into their boot mm-hmm. um, that they can use you know, in a pinch if they, they fire both of their firearms and, uh, and don't want to be left un, un, undefended. So it gives you the ability to um, carry sidearms, which are incredibly important, to realistically use mechanics like misfires, which absolutely happened across the battlefield, an incredibly important thing, an important uh, balancing factor. You know, if firearms do an enormous amount of damage, um, then we have to have other ways to make sure that if you're using more traditional D&D combat, um, that it doesn't just completely negate encounters. Oh, absolutely, um, yeah. And, uh, you know, like I said before, this allows you to, even if, uh, you're a ranger and, you know, your buddy is playing as another ranger. Um, both of you can have different war gear, different types of equipment, um, you know, uh, specialize in, in, in different fighting styles. And you can have radically different play experiences because um, it gives you the ability to, um, you know, use that system to customize your expression um, to, you know, and, and some of them are are. Things like, you know, you instead of wearing boots that you can stick, uh, you know, a pistol or, or a knife in, you wear a pair of riding boots, um, which gives you advantage, you know, <laughs> while, while you're mounted. If you want to be a character who either has a horse or kind of more likely if you're going on missions behind enemy lines is <clears throat> commandeering one yes. from the locals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, and all of this adds to player agency in so many ways and opens up so many doors and the things that that come to my mind are there are so many references that that people can make instantaneously in movies and and connect to historical things that are already out there to be able to have those references half of creating characters and getting involved in these things is being able to imagine who you are and what you're in and all of this paints these beautiful pictures and helps with that creativity in amazing ways. Mm-hmm. One of the things that uh, that I want to, I, I really want to get to, is you you've created a cat, not created, you have taken a cast of people and thrown them in this book in a certain light and given them a beautiful heroic image. And I, I love the artwork that you've used for these people. Um, it's it's a wonderful thing to behold. 
But you've also thrown in some interesting things, and I have to ask the question, are we going to get Benjamin Franklin Banshee Slayer? <laughs> so, um, this started off as a joke, as an in-joke, okay. as a, we're writing the section on gambits, and we're trying to come up with, okay, well, you can use Nations of Cannons as it's intended kind of to play historical games, but there's no reason why you can't this use is- it. All compatible with the swords D&D. and sorcery. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, and and like that was just like a well, it's it's there. People can do it if they if they so want to. And uh, you know, wouldn't you know it? From a lot of our playtesting, right? People really like um, the flintlock fantasy approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, while our historical content is always going to be uh, history first and is going to meant to, you know, kind of ground you in that moment. Um, one of the things that we're starting to explore more and more are things that live, you know, that borrow from folklore and, and, you know, tall tales, um, that live in the shadows, like, you know, just what was Benjamin Franklin doing when he was in France on his diplomatic mission to supposedly have lots of fun parties and impress all the nobles so that they would send aids to the fledgling revolution uh was that what he was really doing the entire time or was it all a cover story for his secret illicit banshee hunting activities yes sure I mean, you uh, clean up these banshees for us we'll aid your war effort no problem that's right. That's right. done and done <laughs> no i love so every moment of the thought that, of that that's going to be um you know i i, I can i can kind of like wing and a nod and, and announce this, right? We have, we have a couple stretch goals that are up there on the Kickstarter right now. Um, that's going to be one of our next ones. Um, so, you know, once, once we get to a certain tier, right, we want to make sure that, you know, we fulfill our, our obligations first, we get the book out, we do all due diligence on putting our, our historical content forward, right? That's yeah, absolutely, important. Absolutely. But if we have, you know, we have the larger raise, if we do well, um, then we have a little bit of extra room to, you know, create a custom, like a PDF, a downloadable print and play type of adventure mm-hmm. to start to open the door a crack into what Flint like fantasy using nations and cannons could look like. And, you know, like I said before, all of our black powder rules are balanced so that you can drop them in your, your fantasy game and mm-hmm. use them. Um, they, they they change up the dynamic of combat in kind of an interesting way because players, you know, can bring multiple loaded powerful uh, single shot uh, muskets and, and such to a single encounter, mm-hmm. there's a lot of burst damage um, at the, the the start of the battle. Um, and, uh, you know, enemies that we have, you know, like I was kind of saying before, our enemy design isn't to have one big bullet sponge, but to really place you in asymmetric systems where you, you know, you're incentivized to be that heroic fantasy of the group of, you know, continental raiders who surprise a British patrol of 30 guys and start to blow them away before they can really adequately respond. Um, and all that is is based and balanced around something that's compatible with a couple of tweaks with baseline 5e. And that's, um, you know, one of the other things that we have on our Kickstarter is a, a product that we've been putting together called uh, uh, our Misfire deck, which comes with, you know, lots of fun little... Um, moments where oh you're you misfire and and what happens well either you know in a you, uh, one that's not super uh, impactful sometimes you're going there's just a puff of smoke and you gotta you can actually reseat the charge and refire it sometimes there are kind of cool narrative effects like your bullet 
uh, ricochets and then lodges itself in, you know, the hatch or the handle of, of a door nearby and stops enemies from being able to break the door down uh, or stops you from being able to escape. And some of them are predictably catastrophic ones like uh, I sure hope you weren't standing next to that cannon when it explodes in a storm of shrapnel and, and gunpowder. Yeah. Um, yep. That whole system is balanced uh, and, and it comes with all of our black powder rules. So you, even if you don't not interested in history at all, even if you don't want to, you know, explore even even a hybrid approach like fantasy elements in uh, the colonial world, you can just take that and drop it right into your existing D and D game. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll tell you what: if I end up in another fifth and fifth edition game anytime uh, in the near future, I'm definitely angling whatever DM for being able to play a firebrand. Guns or no, I just want to play a firebrand. I just think the concept is cool as hell. So I, 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 I like the design of the setting. I like the idea of being able to play a a very folktale hero who is who is working within the histor- historical setting of mm-hmm. the Revolutionary War. So this whole war is going on on the outside. So there's rich histories of the people, but that's not the story we're telling. We're telling within that story. Yeah, and that's yeah, absolutely. that's that's kind of a it. It opens up that level of creativity and expands on it quickly. Yep, yep. Um, I want to get to some questions before we we kind of wrap things up and let you you talk about the Kickstarter at the close here and where we're at. Um, because we did have some really wonderful questions that came through. Um, some of it we've answered, but uh, this one was it was sent to us actually from a historian that uh, that I know personally. He was asking, um, how do you manage battles? Um, light infantry tactics is all about groups of 30 to 50 soldiers all working together for a common goal. And most adventuring parties are no more than eight, usually three to eight. Um, how do you handle that discrepancy in, in, in your system? Yeah, so it's... It's a great question, and we play it slightly fast and loose with the history. The idea being that you know whatever command that you're you're um, following, whether you know in our adventure campaign in in the book, the American Crisis, you're attached to you know the special the special operations of the Continental Army. Um, you're operating as a kind of a half platoon of light infantry, mm-hmm. um, and light infantry was afforded an extraordinary amount of latitude in how they could pick their targets. Now, would they be able to go on missions up and down the course, you know, of the Eastern seaboard, you know, to, to get to encounter all these cool and iconic moments over the course of, of, you know, the revolutionary war, probably not. That's probably a little fictitious. Um, but the, the frame narrative that we're giving it is that you are kind of attached to, to, um, you know, one of the spy master rings that George Washington has formed. Mm -hmm. Um, and that you're, you're kind of dispatched to go shore up his defenses and, and achieve these special objectives that nobody else could. Um, so it's, you know, you are uh, a little bit larger than life in that respect. But I think the, the really interesting part of this question is, you know, um, the idea that you are this small group of players, um, but enemy light infantry troops are like groups of like 30 to 50 soldiers. That actually pans out really well, right? So if you are behind enemy lines, if you are, you know, let's say taking off your uniforms and blending into a loyalist occupied town, mm-hmm. which was a capital offense, by the way, right? Mm-hmm. If you were a spy, if you were found out of uniform um, to be engaging in, you know, espionage actions against the British Empire, they would execute you for that, as famously happened to Nathan Hale. Mm-hmm. Um so uh we want to give players those moments, you know, not just it's not 
it's a game about a war and there are battles that you fight, um, but uh, the game would get pretty boring if it's just battles after battles after battles. And so we want to give you the opportunity to go in as a highly mobile irregular force and you're going to be countered by you know um these like groups of enemy light infantry soldiers those are some of the tougher enemies that you can fight um but you're never in a position where you are fighting the entire british army by yourselves um in fact the british army is kind of like the uh the unspoken behemoth right if you go into british occupied new york where there's like eleven thousand soldiers and you start causing a ruckus well, the GM is going to, you know, want to have, and, and our system is going to have uh, kind of like very, very uh, ironclad rules here for, all right, after a little bit of time, more powerful uh, guards show up and more, you know, the alarm is raised, more soldiers start to converge in your position. Um, you're never going to be able to fight off that juggernaut by yourself. Um, so it, it, we, we really want to set it up so that. If you go loud and you're being kind of stupid about it and mm-hmm. you don't manage to, you know, exfiltrate yourselves from a dangerous predicament like that, um, then it's a it's a pretty catastrophic uh, error because you're soon to be overwhelmed. And so you really want to be, you know, sticking to the shadows, to running down alleyways and finding ways that you can use the fact that you are a small, highly mobile group um, to your advantage to confound your enemies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it feels like there are there, there's that weight is in there that you are fragile. You are in a very dangerous situation, and you're you're very light. You're you're it's not that you're ill-equipped. It's just that you have to work within that framework, or else. Yeah, and, and it, it really it really highlights the importance of uh, you know a lot of the stuff you talked about with the gambits earlier mm-hmm. about you know uh, you know pre-preparing you know traps and and mm-hmm. ambushes and and whatnot uh, ahead of time is all fits very much well with that uh, sort of guerrilla fighter um, sort of mentality. I think is really well. Yeah, um, Rook had a really uh, direct question for you, and that was uh, as a teacher of game design at the college level. Do you have resources or video you would recommend for people who are wanting to make their own game systems or homebrew editions? It's a really good question, and I don't know if I have a specific answer here. Okay, right? that's um, fair. It's kind of a I big think, answer if it has to be one, too. <laughs> yeah, like, like you know, I was alluding to this before, um, particularly for student, for student projects. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I teach... Uh, game design, you know, the creation of video games is my day job, right? Mm-hmm. And um, that's a very different world from TTRPGs, but the skill set is highly transferable when it comes to design. Um, and the biggest problem um, that happens with any type of project is uh, that the design gets locked in the moment you start coding something. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is this is slightly going to be more of a digital-oriented uh, answer, but um, I think it's the same concept is broadly applicable um the there's an importance of paper prototyping of coming up with you know an assertion of what is this mechanic that i want to make how how do i want to challenge my my player how do i want to create interesting environments or obstacles or challenges or enemies for them to overcome um and you really want to use the scientific method to unpack that assertion because you can kind of think oh this is kind of this is fun this will be fun Something is not fun until you have tested it and found it to be so. Oftentimes, when you're making a game, like it's kind of an abstract series of rules, and fun doesn't even enter into the equation until you're several iterations down. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we really find that sweet spot between, you know, um, complexity and, you know, uh, giving the player meaningful choices to make and, you know, ways that they can interact with the environment uh, that feel frictionless. Um, so the beauty of things like TTRPGs um, is that, and, and like taking open standards and existing systems like 5e now is mm -hmm. in now that it has all been uh transferred to um you know an open source license um but how you know paizo is also doing with their orc license um yes. other companies have been doing traditionally um with with their licenses um either in the ttrpg space or in the digital space on you know the modding scene taking it it's not um cliche mm -hmm. It's not hackneyed to take something that already exists and to modify it because if you were to build it from scratch and reinvent the wheel, that's an enormous amount of work. And oftentimes you're going to be spending more of that effort putting together the nuts and bolts and not on the creative expression of new and novel gameplay mechanics. Absolutely. That doesn't mean that you need to stick with that prototype. Most paper prototypes are discarded pretty early mm -hmm. on, even if you're using, you're modding an existing game um, and using it to kind of test your concepts out. And then later on you roll into full-fledged development when you're coding something, you know, yourself and using Unity libraries and stuff like that. It's super important that it's an organic process and you're able to find the fun before you get locked into a fixed production cycle. I think that's great advice. I mean, I, I've i seen it. I watched Sarah try and do it with uh, making the Elder Scrolls game and trying to figure out how it would work and then finally recognizing that, oh, crap, I can just use an existing system. Why am I doing this to right. myself? All this, all this work is already done for myself. Why am I writing this from scratch, you know? Yeah, I've, and I've seen other people who've been doing the exact same thing where they're like, hey, I want to do this. And like most recently, I would say only a few years ago, I was talking with a friend who was looking at Battletech and we're like, oh, I really want to make it more roleplay-like. And I'm like, you know there's a mech warrior. Like, yeah, but it really doesn't have these elements. And within, I think, a year, a new book came out. It was like, oh, well, there we go. <laughs> yeah. Like, yep. now, I'm just going to ignore this half of the book that I don't want to deal with and start running. You and I just talked about that the other day about your uh, uh, using Blades in the Dark, or yes. for us to say Forged in the Dark for Forged your next campaign, Yeah, uh, where you were like, well, I've got all this converting to do. And I'm like, what? What, what are you converting? And you're like, well, the nationalities are different. That's changing the names. Yep. They, they have no mechanical difference. Okay, yep. cool. So that's done for you. Yeah. What else? Yeah. How do we get to the fun? Well, <laughs> what about the magic? What about the magic? What's stopping you from using the magic as written in the book? Like Nothing. Okay. Well, there you go. Yeah, yep. that took that off your plate too. You know? <laughs> it's amazing how com once you get comfortable with just doing it by paper, like you said, yep. grab a system, play with it a little bit, try it out on paper, get to the fun. Yeah, and focus focus on the fun. That's such a such good advice, man. Yeah. I've seen so many game mechanics that you're like, I see what you're trying to do, but why? You know. Yep. You have that uh, you have that uh, Dr. Malcolm, you know, uh, mm -hmm. uh, moment where you're like, you know, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could. They stopped. They didn't stop to think whether they should, you know. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that line opens with they stood on the shoulders of geniuses. Yeah. Right, I want to say, which yeah. is what I'm saying. It's OK. I'm giving you tacit approval to do so. Mm hmm. Yeah, that, that that's coming from the collegiate level, so remember this. <laughs> All right, so we've got one last question here um, from the Mad Elf. Uh, now, I, I think 
We've already asked the question necessarily as it's phrased here. How do you work a magic system designed for a fantasy setting into an extant uh, uh, historical setting? Now, you've you've got gambits. We talked in length about mm-hmm. those. But what I think I want to interpret this question to mean instead is how would you put magic into the Revolutionary War as an alternate universe? <laughs> if we if we had magic in nations and canons, what would it look like to you? So, the biggest thing that you want with any alternate history mm-hmm. is to find a point of divergence that is understandable, but creates a significant enough departure that, like, the aesthetic is immediately different. Yes. Right. Um, and for me, the one that I'm interested in in the future. Um, is there are these moments in the late 18th century um, called the Little Ice Ages. Okay. Where suddenly the temperature would plunge, you know, for certain winters would be the hardest winters on record. And and in a couple instances, this happened just... um, Overnight, like there was no forewarning that this year would suddenly be almost apocalyptically terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people talk at length about Valley Forge and how what a desperate time Valley Forge yeah. was. And, you know, it was right. It was a, there were bad conditions um, and the winter was pretty bad. The worst winter by far that the Patriots faced was actually the winter of um, where they were in Captain Morristown, New Jersey. Um where I went to high school, <laughs> um, uh, which was um, almost like you had feet upon feet of snow piling up. You had like the, the ability of any, uh, either the British or the Patriots to wage any type of offensive operations um, was completely diminished. And there are times when, when contact was almost cut off because supply lines were just, you couldn't get through. Yeah. So what if that snow just started and never stopped? Oh. What if whatever is influencing this little ice age is not simply a, a, a climate quirk, but it is something, it is the old magic breathing its chill back into the world. And as you know, the the continent is blanketed in ice as the glaciers start to come back down again, you know, from Canada, as the Northeast is completely obliterated by an apocalyptic level of snowfall, as contact is completely lost with the mother country, and suddenly the British army has to, you know, find out what to do by itself. But it's not like the Patriots are doing any better because all of their, mm-hmm. the vast majority of their materiel and their their financial capital comes from the North. If everything shifts to the South and the Caribbean, if suddenly, suddenly, specifically, places where the existing power structures of, you know, uh, plantation overseers governing large groups of enslaved people which were completely captive by their ability to t- 
take and generate capital and and sell those goods produced by human slavery to the north, if there's no market, mm-hmm. then overnight you have the ability for people to rise up. And what would that society look like? I mean, not just the fact that the world, the landscape has changed Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the fact that you've got supernatural entities and spirits and folkloric creatures rising up out of the dark. But now there is like the revolution has to live up to its ideals because suddenly you are in a demographic situation where a revolution that all men are created equal has to take place. That's cool. That's fantastic. I love that. Absolutely fantastic. Because everybody at that point is in a level of fear. Mm -hmm. But they're all still feeding in the same direction. I got to say, my my one problem is that as a as a uh, native of Buffalo, New York, uh, I'm not yeah. not impressed by feet of snow. Just, <laughs> I'm so that's sorry. Tuesday. That's that that's fine. That's Tuesday for me, you know. Yeah. So <laughs> we'll cope. We'll cope. All right. Well, I'm going to think we should call it here, Pat. Uh, wh- where are we at, Sarah? Do you, do you have the site up? Because I'm kind of interested now to oh, see to what yeah, we rolled it, up to. Uh, let's see here. I refresh it just a little bit. We are at as of time of recording sixteen. 1,746 of our 25,000 goal. God, uh, that is it's, fantastic. It's cruising right along. I mean, it launched yesterday, and you're already like 70% funded, and I think it's absolutely fantastic. I I cannot wait to see you guys break through that and uh, and hit some of your stretch goals. I looked at some of uh, some of the other offerings. I, I missed the cloth-printed maps. Mm-hmm. I will have to go back and look at that. I'm going to have to put that out <laughs> to a few friends. I did see the red, white, and blue dice. I thought that was hilarious and wonderful all at the same time. Time. It you have a lot going on. I'm sure this next week is going to be pure chaos for you, but we wish we both wish you the best and hope to hear from you at the end of all of this and get caught back up. Absolutely. Thank, thank you guys so much. It's been you know it's always really fun to get on and talk about these design decisions and uh, yeah, this is a the cool deep dive in in some of these uh, little mechanical alleyways that I was not expecting to talk about. So good questions. Good yeah. props to your community there. In Pat Mooney, Flagbearer Games, thank you so much for joining us talking about uh, flags. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, <laughs> nations and cannons. Uh, Kickstarter launched yesterday. Uh, you can find it online at. Uh, is it your dad will love this dot com? Yes, or on, or on Kickstarter through the link. Um, to wrap up next week, we've got another set of guests coming. Yeah, yeah, we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, reactive play versus proactive play. The sort of ebb and flow of uh, of, of of every game session, um, and in fact, of every campaign. Um, uh, you know, who's, who's doing the driving of the action and whatnot. Uh, we have our special guests, Jonah and Tristan Fischel. Yep. Um, and, uh, they are the authors of, uh, the Game Master's Handbook of Proactive Role-Playing. Yes, it's due to come out later this year, but we're kind of getting a little bit of a head with them. And, uh, we're hoping that, uh, uh that, uh, you guys will listen in and enjoy because, the pre-discussion that we had with them has was enchanting and fantastic. Yeah, they're just fan- fantastic individuals, and uh, it it really does pull together a lot of the comments that a lot of the constructive uh, building that we did with our 101 series mm-hmm. and what we're doing with our 202. So I think you'll find a lot of connection, if especially if you're a new storyteller. Or even an existing one, you're going to find a lot of pieces that are going to come together for you. So maybe if you're looking to take your game to the next level. Perhaps. (laughs) 
Alrighty. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we can uh, you can find us on Twitter at st underscore conclave on Instagram at st underscore conclave. Listen to us live every Wednesday night at seven p.m. Eastern time on mixlr.com slash storyteller dash conclave. And uh, join us up on our Discord. We'd love to hear from you there. Uh, shoot us some questions, and uh, we'll answer them here in the air. Or just uh, engage in discussion with the many storytellers that are up there. Bounce some campaign ideas off, whatnot. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can find that link on our Twitter as well as our website, storytellerconclave.com. We'd like to thank our Patreon members who support us every single month, especially our name members, Knox in the Box, Subject, Sam, The Arcane Asylum, Sparkle Motion, Veteran, Hulavu, and Sean. We truly appreciate all your support. Our pre-show music is by Arcane Anthems. You can find them at patreon.com slash arcaneanthems or on Instagram. Our intro music is Beyond the Warriors by Geefrog. You can find that at geefrog.bandcamp.com or on Google Music. And our outro music, Only Footprints in the Sand, is by Midair Machine. You can find them at freemusicarchive.org. And a big shout-out, as always, to our families, Vicky and Sean. Thank you so much for loving and supporting us. All of our friends who sat with us at our tables over the years give us these great stories to share with you. Our Pat. special guest, Pat. I was getting to okay, it. Okay. <laughs> Just interrupt me. Uh, our, our special guest today, Pat Mooney from Flagbearer Games. Thank you so much for joining us Thank once you. again. And you, every single one of our listeners, we love you so much. Love you guys. Good night. Good night.